Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're picking up where we left off in our very special episode called Grilling and Mythbusting with the EIF with David Dana, head of ICT investments at the EIF. Now remember, the questions David is answering are all sourced from the EU VC community and former guests. And we thank David for taking up the challenge. The first part went deep on the EIF's investment strategy, whereas this episode will cover many more topics ranging from the EIF's raising of private funds, how the EIF thinks and goes about stimulating the market without competing with private actors, how the EIF picks emerging managers, the role of track record and team size in the eyes of the EIF, how they think about GP compensation and carry distribution, their own response times, and finally, how investors are chosen for the EIF's angel program. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and learn a lot more about the thoughts and workings of arguably the most important LP in the European VC industry. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. I'd love for you to just d- dive right into it again here in our second part of our conversation. I want to start up with a question that goes to the EIF's recent announcing of private funds a few years back. And I'm very curious to understand whether you have these funds investing alongside public funds and if the investment strategies are the same. And what would you say to those who believe that there is a conflict between a government slash public mandate and then at the same time competing with the commercial managers that EIF backs? I wouldn't say there is a conflict. The concept of this product is that we are regularly contacted by entities usually relatively big corporate, but not the ones which have their own investment arm or corporate venture arm, let's say tier two in terms of size. Also financial institutions, which are for some of them are managing billions of euros, but are not exposed to this sector and want to be closer to the innovation field, but still don't know how to do it. And making one single investment as an LP is maybe too uh, random for them in terms of potential spillovers. They reached out to us asking how we could help them accessing and addressing this issue and accessing the market. So what we agreed with them is that we would help in a way where it would basically not be competing. And what we decided to do at the end was to launch a kind of fund of fund of fund. So adding a layer, meaning that we have been offering them an access to those top categories of European VCs, especially the ones where they wouldn't have been able to access otherwise. Typically, the ones which are now oversubscribed, delivering very strong returns on a recurring basis, and where we, EIF, have an entry point because most of them wouldn't be here today without our initial backing. So it's not like if we were just replacing uh, what we invest with public money with this money. What we do and what we've done, because currently the first 
program is over, meaning that it has been fully invested, we are now raising the second one, is that we have been investing alongside other resources. There are very, very few exceptions where we only invested this purely privately funded mandate only. Typically, with managers, we couldn't commit to respect the requirement we have with our public money mandates and programs. But for these other ones, which are still delivering very good returns but couldn't commit to a certain of those elements, we invested only with this private money. But otherwise, we invested with usually this private mandate, which was not huge in size, so it was more completing what we did with public funding than uh, replacing it. Does make sense, but I'm still curious because, as you say, you have this access because you backed the very good funds in the very early days. And as such, now they're oversubscribed and that's all good. But that also means that the EIF takes up a spot in their allocation that someone else could have had. What are your views on that and why is that a good position to be in for the ecosystem to have you there? We didn't want to be there at any price and we didn't force our position in the funds. But what we've heard from managers, even those who are now raising their generation six, seven or eight of very successful franchise now of blue chip manager with the VC funds, which are all very successful, is that having been supported historically by EIF on a recurring basis, most of the LPs, if not all of them, are very reluctant to come if they see that EIF is not there. Independently of what we could put in terms of ticket size, just in the principle, having EIF stopping backing a manager is not seen as a good sign on the market. And this is also the reason why, to some extent, there are some managers for which we used to represent, in some cases, 25, 30, 40% of the fund size in the first generations. Now, with the latest one, there's one where I think we invested less than what the GP is putting in terms of GP commitment. For most of them, it's more a question of principle, having EIF or not which is also reinsuring, first of all, for some of the LPs, and secondly, also for the GPs, because now when things go well, that's fine. You can go without EIF, and that's not a point for us. But then if the cycle goes down, usually when you're an asset manager, you try to cut first your riskiest investments, and VC, I think, is quite well positioned in this case, unfortunately, to be among the first collateral damage, I would say. You mentioned something there that I want to probe a bit into, because the signal value of the EIF is, of course, great when you can get the EIF on board. But at least what I have seen is when you have a player with that strong signal value, then there's also signal to not being able to bring them on board. And we're seeing that a lot in Denmark as well with our main player, that you have LPs waiting to see if the government-backed fund goes in. I would say that we're seeing the same thing in Europe, that some LPs look to see if the EIF goes in, and if not, well, then they expect that something is up. I would say there are two categories of LPs. So one which are highly sophisticated and do it on a regular basis, if not for some of the team members on a daily basis. So for them, having EIF or not is not an issue. Either they want to do something, and in this case, they're not waiting for us, or the less sophisticated wait for us and in many, many cases, wait for us to have done the work as well. <laughs> and that's something I was referring to those industry events which have resumed. Tuesday, Wednesday, I was in Paris for this venture forum in West Europe. And again, there was a kind of side session for LPs only. And many of them confirmed that when uh, EIF has signed a commitment, not has started the work, for some of them just starting the due diligence is already uh, showing that there might be something interesting there. But when we have signed our commitment, for them that is a signal that point in time when they say, okay, 
now if we like the, the concept of what we are offered we can sign as well because they know that not only we will be doing a, I would say a standard but quite detailed fund of fund due diligence but we will also implement market standards and also try to get the highest alignment of interest as possible with the team kind of a follow-up to uh, the previous topic you guys were talking about and it's actually something we got from our community so don't quote me on it <laughs> but it is super interesting which is and the comment is that eif was originally designed to stimulate the european markets and then kind of reduce that activity as it becomes self-sustaining or as they become self-sustaining similar to what's going on in the u.s market and this is quite a strategic question because it goes to the point how do you evaluate that progress towards this point inside the EIF and how do you manage that? There are different elements that we are looking at. First of all, on a deal-by-deal basis, but also in aggregate. Something which is extremely important for us and which is reported by all the GPs because this is part of what we request in terms of reporting guidelines, for instance, is the number of jobs created number of companies invested. This is a first element which is purely, I would not say political, but policy-oriented. And this is what we are looking for at the very end. Now we have other kinds of policy objectives. And this is something, I don't recall to be frank if we mentioned it during the first part of this discussion, but what is very true is that EIF is going into more specialization. This is something that we've seen as a trend over the last two years and which is also due to a kind of rebalancing of the resources we are investing, meaning that we will have no more money to invest coming from sources which have a dual objective, not only financial, financial for sure, but also policy ones. And the policy ones are usually of two folds. One element which is about developing what we call these underdeveloped markets in terms of access to venture capital for startups, typically Central Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, mainly on, say, uh, not Spanish side, where you start to see already quite some good money at work. And the second part is to support strategic sectors for the European Union. And this is about European sovereignty in terms of technology. So we have a number of sectors which are definitely identified. Uh, we already started making some investments with pilot programs to show that there was a market and that we were able to identify good quality players to enter this market and support the companies. And then we would continue with the new programs. And maybe a last element, which is also extremely important for us when it comes to growth financing, later stage growth financing, where basically 70 or 80% of the round of $100 million or more in European companies are led by US investors. And here we think that we, EIF, but not only us, also what we call these national promotional institutions, the likes of BPI in France, KFW in Germany, have a role to play to further develop this market and help establishing teams with large means enough to compete and try to keep those companies uh, European longer. Can you shed some light on the relationships between the EIF and these national institutions that you just talked about, BPI, and of the sorts across Europe? I think at the starting point, most of them are investors in EIF, meaning they are shareholders of EIF. For a more kind of a symbolic part, but still, this is a starting point which shows that we have strong and regular relationships. We have different kinds of relationships. When it comes to our guarantee activities, for instance, there are some of those NPIs, as we call them, with which we have signed contracts, granting them specific amounts of guarantees so that they can lend more money to innovative SMEs. This is the first type of relationship. Another one, when it comes to VC, more specifically, we are very regularly co-investing together in funds. 
we are not running joint due diligence or something like that. We are all independent entities making our own investment decisions. We are definitely sometimes joining forces when need be to be in a stronger position to negotiate some specific terms. But it's not because one of them is investing that we will or will not invest in, in a fund. There are also quite a high number of funds where we are invested and those NPIs are not. So this is another type of relationship. And then when it comes to more strategic topics, we have regular discussions with them. We try to find ways to address those strategic objectives, not only for individual countries, but for Europe as a whole. And in that last bucket, so to speak, I guess you'd include more policy-driven interactions because my understanding is that NPIs, at least from my geographies, they do play a big role in the policy going on in this space at a national level. How is that interaction? Are you uh, kind of an advisor? Is it the other way around? How does that work? It depends. In some countries where those NPIs have been making their own investments for decades, they don't need us to tell them what to do. So they do what they think is best for the country and we collaborate on specific occasions. Should it be investing in specific funds or more generally in agreeing on some particular programs that we could be running and it happens from time to time together. In some other ones where the market is less developed usually, what happens is that either the NPI or the government, one ministry, want to help fostering this ecosystem locally. So what they do is that they secure some specific resources in their budget and select usually EIF to come and advise them and make the selection of the candidates, meaning the GPs applying to become beneficial of those programs. And then we do this because we are experienced, skilled and known also for promoting and implementing best market practice. They come to us and we help them doing this. And it has resulted in quite a number of programs in countries like Greece, Poland, to some extent, uh, Croatia, just, you know, quoting some names. But we have much more than that. Also, sometimes it happens at the level of a region. In France, for instance, we have been doing this in some particular regions or in some regions in Italy as well. So this is how we can help the market also at a more regional level, which sometimes is not alike when you compare to uh, pan-European players. It's not the same thing, definitely. But this is part of our developmental role to support also that kind of programs and initiatives. You just cued me there <laughs> on the regional development because you've just recently published the uh, EIF and Invest Europe's report on the VC factor. Mm -hmm. I think that's the name of it. And there, one of the key findings is that we have a bit of an issue with capital being more centralized around the major hubs and capitals than startup origination is. I'm very curious, both your interpretation of that, the consequences of it, and what the EIF are doing to actively mitigate that. You have to look, first of all, when you're talking about where the money is invested at all level, if you're talking about the funds or the companies. I would say that would be the first element, because sometimes you invest in a fund in Germany that would be investing as well in France, as well as Germany, but also in Poland or Estonia. So this is the first element. And then when it comes to those markets, which I mentioned uh, without the pejorative aspect as underdeveloped, this is because there's a lack, if not an absence sometimes, of local money. Usually you have uh, small funds, quite small, when I say small, usually around 5 to 10 million euros max, investing at seed stage very locally with 100% of public money. This is a good start, but definitely not enough. So what does that kind of company do immediately? They look at a broader scale and they look abroad. 
And when I say abroad, it's not to the neighboring countries, it's to the big hubs where they know that there is money. There are investors which are qualified not only to invest for sure, but also to help them to expand internationally. Because when you're located in a smaller region, especially when also you have some specificities in terms of language, you have to think abroad and global from day one. Because if you're just targeting to become the champion in a smaller country, that's a good start. But what is the next step then? If you're not able to replicate and you know, to a certain extent to scale up globally, you will not become an interesting target for investors. So you have to think big. You have not to be shy of that, to be transparent also that this your objective is not to become the new uh, national champion, but the new global champion. Maybe you will not reach it at this level, but if you don't try, you don't get it. So I think when that's part of this developmental I was mentioning, EIF played a role already in a number of regions and countries by supporting those programs initiated by the local authority, as we say, which we advised or managed to select the best type of investors we can find. And sometimes it's quite tough because you don't have yet skilled people in terms of investment. Usually taking the example of, for instance, Greece, where a number of years ago, there was basically no early stage market. We have developed a program with the Greek government and Greek ministry. And what happened is that it generated by itself a number of initiatives. And what we have noticed, and it's happened also in other countries where we have had similar type of programs, is that usually you have people from the diaspora, meaning in this case, people from Greek origins or Greek people who were in the US, in other European countries, who had very strong and successful operational experience as founders, entrepreneurs, or as high-level, C-level, I would say, management people in big corporations, or investors in uh, bigger funds, who made also, in most cases, good experience, which allowed them to be quite comfortable in coming back to the country and help the local market to develop. So taking this example of Greece, which has worked well, we now have quite a few of early stage investors making very good returns, very strong performance, and we see a number of companies on their way to become unicorns, which for the Greek market is not something you would have been expecting 10 years ago. So this is the kind of things we see and we do to help those markets. But we need also a local willingness and partner to help us doing that. Emerging managers, we have a bunch of them in our community and all of them are super curious to better understand how exactly do you evaluate first-time managers, emerging teams specifically, because many of them don't have that investment track record yet. How do you compensate for that? Or do you just say, nah, no investment track record, no money from me yet? <laughs> People have to know that on average, yeah, I would say between 15 and 20% of what we do on an annual basis is with new first-time team. And first-time teams means either people with experience in terms of investment in another context or people just raising their first institutional fund. So definitely when you're looking at a first-time team with very limited, if any, investment track record, you will not be assessing the same thing as uh, with a manager which has already raised uh, five generations of funds. The track record component is important, definitely. And that's why sometimes we have teams coming up with operational people only, highly skilled, highly technical, providing highly value had for the companies. But then Managing and investing a VC fund is something quite special, I would say, especially when it comes to uh, making hard decisions 
when you have to cut and pull the plug with a company or when you have to make a decision in allocating your reserves. So you have to be rigorous to have done that, to have experienced full cycle investment to see what it is also when it comes from an entry point when you make an initial investment of tens of thousand euros up to an exit of ideally billions. We are usually requesting at least one team member to have that type of experience. And we have many, many examples. And not recently, for the last 10 years and more than when I joined the IF, we had teams which are very strong, but we ask them to come with one at least person with experience in terms of investment. But another element which is very important to know is that those first-time teams are of two categories. The ones are market where basically there's nothing, or the ones willing to enter a market which is already highly competitive. For the ones on the more developmental part of it, this is slightly different. And usually we have some resources locally to help them and we perform a standard due diligence. We are not less demanding. We are maybe even more demanding to some extent because we want to make sure that we go for the ones which are motivated and have the good reasons to do that. Not because um, it would may be easy as they could sing some time to get money. We want people to be chosen by those entrepreneurs. So the ones capable of providing this added value. And for the ones entering markets which are definitely more competitive, especially Western European ones, it wouldn't make sense for us to come and back a new team, to put them on the market and to have them competing on every single deal with all the other ones we already backed and which are acting on the market. So we need to see something different. And something different can be of various styles. You know, It can be a way to make an investment, a way to support the companies, a dedicated and specific value add. Again, this value add topic is super important because we are convinced that the good entrepreneurs have the choice. They decide with whom they want to work and which investor they want to have in the cap table. So they will not go for the ones just bringing money because at the end in markets, as we see now, which are going quite well, there's quite a lot of money available. And we want to be backing those GPs, which will have the highest chances to be selected by the entrepreneurs. So that's why a good part of what we do is also referencing, meaning that we want to get some feedback from the market. It can be VCs, it can be entrepreneurs, LPs, entrepreneurs, as I said, with which it had worked well, but also the ones which it worked less well, let's say it this way, to make sure that those people are skilled and are bringing something. Because otherwise, as I said, we are so diversified, I would say, in our portfolio construction, it wouldn't make sense. And we then would prefer to stick to the ones which are already on the market and delivering higher returns. So, yes, the message is for emerging managers, you have to bring something new. Should it be by developing a new market, as I said, for these underdeveloped geographies, or bringing specific added value, which can be either with a very specialized strategy or a more generalist, but with a way to do things which may differ from what already exists on the market. I have a very kind of operational or very kind of standard slash benchmark question here, which also comes from our network, which I'm actually really interested to hear your thoughts on, which is regarding carry standards. We had a little discussion going on, what are the standards in Europe? Are there standards? <laughs> and also about, you know, carry distribution between investing and non-investing rules. There was even a funny conversation going with some of our uh, members that are more on the platform side and they were trying to understand, okay, what is common, what doesn't happen? And I'd love to just have your general thoughts about this. What have you seen? What would you say is standard? What isn't standard? Are there even standards? Yeah, I would say in terms of carried interest, there are major trends 
and always exceptions. But major trends, I would focus on this, something which is for us systematic in this way. It's not a trend, it's systematic. First of all, we are never talking about a deal-by-deal carry as a starting point, because sometimes we get some uh, requests. Uh, this is definitely common in the US. We are not in the US. So we do it in the, on, I would say, European style, which sometimes is a bit different, <laughs> a bit less GP friendly than what can happen in the US. But the market is as it is in Europe, and it's a bit more LP friendly than in this case. So when you say you don't do deal by deal carry, does that mean that if a fund comes with that, then it's a no-no for you and you'll say you need to cut that? or we don't invest, or is it something that you frown upon it, but it may work? One extreme would be that you had full-time employees on deal-by-deal carry, and the other extreme would be uh, you have a few venture partners who and scouts who get deal-by-deal carry. Yeah, I would say it's not per se a no-go, but 99.9% is not deal-by-deal carry. Let's phrase it this way. It's nicer. Uh, uh, very clear. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I think the concept is that, first of all, maybe this is coming back to what we discussed in the first part. It's about backing independent team. And independent team means people who make the decision by themselves. They're not employees. They have, ideally, 100% of the shares of the management company, if not at least the vast majority. And they're making the decisions, they're making the monitoring of the lines, and they're also divesting them. They're doing the work on a daily basis. So that's why they are the ones entitled to receiving carried. We can accept people not being in the, I would say, core, fully dedicated team to receive a small amount of carried. It has to be duly justified and usually either forcing since the beginning, as this might be a kind of part of an original setup, or it will have to be approved by the investors, usually at the advisory board level, but it can happen. And what we see typically, we are not willing either to see uh, only the managing partners to receive carried interest, because maybe they are the ones who are making the difference now, but they will not be here forever. And if you do not prepare succession, and if you do not incentivize the teams and the ones you see as potential successors to remain on the long term within the management company and potentially being the next figures representing the firm on the market, then you're not building success stories and you're here only for a very short time. I would refer to what has happened in a number of GPs in Israel, for instance, where you used to have big names. Some of them are still here. These are the ones where you see a variety of partners now. The ones where the historical partners never wanted to open the shareholding of the management company, never wanted to share significantly the carried interest, they collapsed. Even though they were very successful, they collapsed because after a certain period of time, you become a bit disconnected from the market and entrepreneurs like to talk with also with people from their generation. So maybe for someone who is now in its 20s years old, might be more difficult to talk to someone in its 70s. So It's a question of natural evolution of the market and of the DNA, I would say, of the entrepreneurs. And what we see, which works well, is definitely when you have a fair balance of more senior seasoned investors and younger partners, not that they would be claiming an equal partnership on all points. This is not the point now, but you have to spread it in a fair way. And you can always keep a kind of smaller reserve at the level of the Manco to then allocate to the top performing partners if it makes sense. But usually what happens is that from day one, 
people have to know what skin they have in the game, what they can get out of it. Because it happens too frequently that partners do not want to open this, want to keep it for the smaller group of initial founders. Then what happens is just that the other partners, they leave. They leave, they join other teams, or they, in many cases as well, launch their own new funds. And then what will happen, especially as we know that over time, some of those junior partners might be the ones thanks to whom the performance is here, then LPs are not stupid either, I hope. So they will be following the ones delivering the performance. I want to dive a bit more into your world because it's quite different, your job, than most other fund of funds because you're actually managing a team of fund of fund investors because you are as big as you are. Could you share a bit more in detail what are the operations behind managing a team like that? I think the most important one for me is managing people, not managing team members or colleagues. It's people, meaning that especially now in the current context, you have to pay attention to the people and to their uh, potential private concerns. Work-life balance is super important. Definitely not ideal currently at CIF because uh, of a number of reasons, but it's quite uh, tough currently. People would maybe not expect, but yeah, working at CIF is not like of being a civil servant and just waiting uh, for <laughs> retirement. Working. <laughs> We're working, yeah. It happens from time to time, yeah. <laughs> no, no, definitely this is something uh, people have to know. And it's not only EIF, it's generally speaking LPs. We receive a lot and a lot of requests. We always and systematically revert to any kind of people trying to interact with us. We regularly receive messages from entrepreneurs. We do not invest directly, but still we get back to them explaining why or what they should do. We think this is also part of making the market and the ecosystem, keeping it lively and useful for everyone. What we do on a daily basis, it's about managing people. It's about managing any kind of internal or external issues you may have. Let's focus on the external ones, not to disclose too much of our internal cooking, you know. <laughs> we have a lot and lot of requests on a daily basis, the official ones and the unofficial ones. Official ones are about any kind of decision which may to be approved at any kind of advisory board level. And given we systematically ask for a seat in advisory boards, Then we are consulted. We make our own decision at front office level, but then, especially when it has some uh, implication in terms of legal documentation or potential risk profile of the transaction, we have also to discuss and get the endorsement of other services. So this is one part of the job. We are doing a lot of analysis of new proposals. We receive more than 400 requests on a yearly basis. It has to be processed. So, And we do not want to do one quicker than another one. We try to spend and to put as much attention to any of them. So we spend a lot of time on that. We spend time also in uh, events, now in person, but it used to be the case also online during the pandemic, because we have, uh, and this is very true, a kind of strong view and quite exhaustive view of what is happening in Europe. So we can also provide a lot of guidance and feedback to the market. Informally, we are discussing with GPs, on, for some of them, on a daily basis. We are talking about any kind of issues that we would like to discuss. It can be as basic as, um, yeah, we're looking for a partner with a type of profile or a senior investment manager or director. If you think about someone, if you see someone in a fund doing well, but willing to move, to relocate, whatever it can be, 
we can suggest names. We are here because the manager says, yeah, I'm thinking about the evolution of the cap table uh, between the partners. How do you see it? What is the, what are the references in the market for the valuation of the Manco? We want to launch new strategies at the management level. We want to raise a new fund with a dedicated team. How do you see that? Would you be interested in any kind of thing which relates to what would be a potential next step is usually quite a reference to us, meaning that we're reached out on a daily basis by those managers. And we do that because we provide the answers to that and advice. We never make any decision. We just tell them what we think would make sense or would be appropriate. And then, as always, we say, guys, this is your decision. We are not making decisions. We are just providing feedback, guidance. But then at the end, you are the ones deciding. You mentioned a number there, 400 requests per year. At what level of the funnel is that? And I'm asking specifically because I remember Atan Khan saying on the podcast that he had had 400 deals coming to him just in the first half year of 2021. And if he's receiving the same type of deal flow and he's a manager focused on investing in emerging managers and known to be one of the guys ready to move quite early without some of the same criteria as you do, I think that that would at least to me tell me that there is a need for more fund of funds investing in emerging managers that aren't as established as you guys at the EIF require. Yes. Yeah, I think what explains maybe the, the fact that we receive, let's call it only, which is that's already quite a lot, I can assure you, uh, 400 proposals a year, is that many people think that we would not consider their request unless they already have a first generation of fund or if they do not have already 10, 15, 20 million secured. So maybe they go first to Ertan and other similar type of players, which, by the way, are not that many on the market. Well, I think, yeah, that's definitely something where we would need more fund of funds. We are, you know, the likes of uh, Isomer, Altea in uh, Spain and uh, Ertan with multiple capital. All what they do is great, really useful. Yeah, and, and you're now committing to allocating more funds to starting those, uh, right? That's what you just said? <laughs> no, not specifically. If, But, you know, again, I said on average 15, 20% is with first-time teams. It can be more, it can be less. If this is a good quality proposal, happy to back them, you know. So no worries with that. It's not like if we said at the beginning of the year, okay, we will keep uh, X amount of uh, euros to uh, invest in first-time teams. No, we do what we think is interesting and makes sense for the market. And how about emerging fund of fund managers? Because that is where I see we have a big lack. Uh, we're lacking someone who can move on early funds. There are very few, and usually when they start, it's tough for them to raise a, a lot of money, meaning that they will be making maybe more investment that they would like to do with a higher means because they have to uh, diversify also and see uh, what would work maybe for their next generation of fund of fund. This is definitely a lack on the market, especially as some private investors, they just don't want to back first-time tips. Or for them, this is a reason sufficient by itself to say no. And this is something which definitely is uh, still lacking on the market. I don't know. I'm not sure there's a lot we can do. And we have had programs to support first-time uh, fund of funds. Isomer is one of those who benefited from that a uh, number of years ago. And now they have super well developed. And I think they don't need us anymore. And that's great. That's great because it means that they've been doing super well and they're very smart guys doing very interesting stuff. But yeah, so far, there are no plans. It might be, but I don't want to create expectations that will not be met. It might be that we will have the option of potentially backing further funds with upcoming programs, but nothing is granted yet. So as long as it's not the case, 
I will not recommend federal funds to come and ask for financing because if we don't have means, it wouldn't make sense. But if we were to be capable of doing that, we would communicate around it for sure. Yeah, we'll keep our eyes peeled <laughs> yeah. for sure. <laughs> Very interesting. I want to go back a bit to the operations side of your job. Some would argue that the response times from RF are quite lengthy, that they take quite some time and that that impacts the fundraise process. Do you think that is a fair criticism? How would you nuance it? I would say fair and unfair. <laughs> fair in the way that indeed it can appear as being long, but you would be surprised if you were in some particular events. I think even it was before COVID where a quite reputed US fund of fund, which was opening a branch in Europe, said their typical timeline is around 18 months and then we can beat them for sure. So this is uh, one aspect, but I would say, yeah, this is long. And on our side, it's long for a simple reason. We're investing EU taxpayer money. So we have quite a lot of steps, formal steps to do in a certain format. And this is something with a minimum time of processing requested that we cannot decrease. For instance, when we go to our board, we have to respect a certain timeline, have everything prepared and ready a number of weeks before that. And we have 10 board meetings a year. So all in all, I would say in normal times, it's around seven to nine months between a formal submission of a proposal and a potential signature. With the COVID, it has increased, definitely. But now I would say it's around 10 to 12 months, yes. And I would not be sure that it's impairing fundraising processes for managers uh, because people know that. So they have to capture it and to implement this in their strategy. And that's why also some four or five years ago, we systematically wanted to be part of first closings. This is not the case anymore, meaning that we have a still a preference, but if we cannot, then we are fine with the joining a bit later and we can even go on final closings to some extent. It's not a preferred option, but it can happen. So I would say it's usually quite a strong signal when other LPs know that we have started our formal process and we are always happy to share where we stand and what is our view on a specific manager. This is something that I think LPs do not do sufficiently, yeah, talking agree. to each other. And sometimes it's only a question of process why we are not capable of signing this week and not three or four weeks later. It may be seen as being problematic, but if we are just asked, and usually we are quite open to discuss anything with the LPs notably, they just have to reach out to us and ask. And we are always very transparent and we have to be and we are always very transparent. I thought of two questions here that I want to ask that are completely off script now, which is COVID. How did that impact timelines and processes? I'm curious to hear. And then another question, which is unrelated, but I'll ask them both just to keep it uh, short. Do you also hunt for funds or do you only get inbound? And how do you manage that? Let's start with hunting. <laughs> It's the bear conversation again. <laughs> yeah, I would say, again, out of those 400 proposals a year, I would say a fair part of it, maybe half of it, is thanks to our personal networks. Most probably those managers would have reached out to EIF, but part of them wouldn't have. And sometimes just by discussing with managers or with people we know, it also helps them understanding that maybe the next step for them is to launch a fund with that uh, kind of strategy or that kind of focus. So I would say we are actively hunting when it comes to specific strategies, and especially if when we have particular mandates to deploy and to invest. We had ones in AI and blockchain, in space. Those sectors which were not yet 
as developed as as they are now, even though uh, blockchain and space notably are still a bit nascent in Europe, it was even less developed four or five years ago. So we had been specifically actively hunting at some specialized events with people we knew were active there to find appropriate initiatives. So this is a bit what we do. And also when we are attending industry events online or in person now, we are regularly coming back with contact details of people who are thinking about something. Maybe it's not for now. But it's a kind of a planting seed for the future. It happens regularly that people with whom we've been talking four or five years ago in another context can come up as part of a proposal we receive later on. So this was for the second question. The first one on how COVID has impacted our processes actually on the timeline. Initially, we thought that it would be temporary. So during a certain period of time, we didn't process investment into teams that we didn't know. And by didn't know, I mean that we hadn't met at least one in person. Over time, it appeared that it would be longer than anticipated. So we changed that. But combining this with the fact that we have had this uh, European Guarantee Fund, which is a specific program initiated by member states to support the European economy and EU startups in this context, this came up with money to be invested to support those enterprises through VCs but which had to be invested in 2021. So it added up a lot of additional processes. So on an usual year, I would say we're invested into 40 to 50 funds. We will end up 2021 most probably with a number closer to uh, 100, 110, which implied a lot of additional work, which not increasing human resources implied for sure additional delays. My take is that it wasn't a typical period. <laughs> no, um, no. I have to ask this as a follow-up to the second question, which is, do you have data on who you end up investing based on the source of that deal? So from on the VC level, right, we talk a lot about warm intros, cold intros, and how that impacts the success of the startup getting funding. Do you have any insights on that, on your own operations? No. <laughs> that's not something we are tracking short and sweet <laughs> yeah now, you know it doesn't make any difference at the end for us as i said some people contact us directly individuals within eif because they know us either directly or through a common connection but most probably they would have ended up by contacting eif anyway so it's not a major KPI, I would say, that we are tracking. Even though we would be focusing only on what is a kind of a natural pipeline, we would have had enough to work a full year at least. But I would say sometimes it can result in something which is a bit more risky on the paper, but more in line with uh, our policy objectives. Because sometimes it's by talking, as I said, by talking with people that you create a kind of emulation between the people and good ideas can come out of here. And sometimes it's as basic as a, I have an example talking with a, someone in the US who introduced me to his son who is American but working in Europe, who knew a friend raising a fund in Central Eastern Europe who didn't think that AF would have been interested. So all in all, Yes, this is uh, how this one particularly was sourced. There are many, many ways to start discussing with us, and we're always happy to listen to anything which seems interesting. I have to either confirm or deconfirm something here, because you've said a few times that you've been talking to managers that hadn't thought that you would be interested in kind of like that situation. Is there something wrong in your communication there? What's going on? Why managers have beliefs about the EIF that aren't true? 
So for example, I need to have 10 million committed already before I start process with you. Doesn't make sense, not true at all. EIF doesn't invest in emerging managers, not true at all, that's 10 to 15%. What's going on there? Why is there this disconnect between the belief in the market and what you want to say? Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's a, a huge disconnect, but I would say that maybe sometimes the question of interpretation, because if you are a manager, not in direct connection with the IF, but looking at what is raised on the market, and you see this fund is raised, EIF is invested, this other fund as well. And you see names that uh, ring a bell. So it's not purely coming as a purely emerging team. You would think that, first of all, EIF is investing in those names only. Whereas, uh, what is very true as well is that in many cases for those particular setups, if we don't invest, the project doesn't materialize. So it's a bit more difficult to see. People have to know that it happens it's not super common, but it happens maybe three, four times a year that we have done all of the job, all of the work on a new emerging team. We had the case again recently, and that's really a pity. We signed our commitment conditional to the fact that there was a manager would reach a minimum fund size, and they didn't. They were not successful anyhow in fundraising despite our support. It happens. So meaning that there's a lot of things happening that is not directly visible that are not visible on the market because, for sure, you do not communicate on what doesn't materialize. So this is an aspect. And the other one, as I said, sometimes maybe uh, those managers are a bit shy on communicating as well because they are raised smaller funds, which will represent sometimes half of the fund size. Maybe they think it's not the best way to market themselves. So either they communicate later on. We had some examples recently of a manager communicating one year and a half after we signed. So people say, oh, you invested there. Say, yes, but for quite some time now. But because it took them that time, to go from the minimum fund size, which were viable, but definitely a bit small, to a more appropriate, bigger fund size. So it's a combination of various elements, I would say, and not only focusing on the fact that EIF does or does not back emerging managers. We are not looking at any kind of new initiative to see whether we would be interested. And sometimes also we have people who tell us, yeah, we don't want public money. And fine. That's their choice. No worries with that. The spiciest section of this interview, <laughs> which is a question that we got in and I decided purposely to keep it and quote it. <laughs> and I, I actually should have asked it when we were talking about standards and I completely forgot, but here it is. EIF is known to dramatically squeeze funds in terms of terms and conditions whenever it can. Is this good for the growth of the VC industry in Europe when it is already so far behind the US? Does EIF have a bias against fund managers having adequate compensation given the dramatic difference with the US. Please, <laughs> David, give us your thoughts on this <laughs> and be kind. <laughs> yeah, to be very frank with you, I'm not sure this is a fair question because I think the role EIF has played in developing the European market answers by itself. I think without EIF, 15, 20 years ago, there wouldn't have been a VC market in Europe or maybe only 10 players, maybe, who never needed us and that's good for them. But otherwise, I think even the most successful we see now in Europe needed us to help them starting or becoming independent to uh, present sponsor or things like that. We are not afraid of having people becoming rich thanks to public money financing through VC funds, but we do not want them to become rich with management fees. 
Definitely not. We want them to become rich with carried interest, which would mean that we and other investors are also making returns. So what we are looking for is a fair alignment of interest. I'm not sure we can say that in the VC industry, people are not paid well or relatively well. It depends for sure. You always have exceptions. You have people who just do not pay themselves because they prefer everything to go to the Manco or people paying very comfortable salaries. But we are fine with that also because they've been delivering higher returns for decades, so for two, three generations of funds. And then we don't have any concern with that because we know that even though they may have already earned quite a lot in carried interest, we are aligned. What we don't want is people to come, live super well, thanks to management fees only. So definitely we would not accept crazy salaries. Sometimes we get budgets and we do not accept them, meaning that we're negotiating the management fees. And we always have a cap on the management fees because we have statistics, we see what works. We're not in the US. Definitely we're not there. Okay, fine. So what? If the people want to be considered as serious and motivated guys willing to make this market successful, they have to accept that they will live well, but they will not become millionaires only through management fees. This we do not want, definitely. I guess when you're thinking about compensation, you're also looking into regional differences, right? So what would be the standards? That's definitely something you have into account, I guess, right? Uh, yes, uh, yes. But again, sometimes attracting a profile which would help launching something which can become new or the global or uh, the regional leader would need similar salary to what you can earn in Western Europe. And then you have to understand this as well. We also pay attention to that, to tax, to many, many things. And that's also maybe talking about compensation. We can also make the link with what we call the team commitment. So how much is the team contributing to the project? Because they used to have a belief on the market and the 1% was accepted by everyone. I never understood where it came from, to be frank, because over the last 10 years, I think we accepted maybe five or six times 1%, whereas we have been investing over this period of time in more than 250 funds. So we are not asking for people to be at risk at a personal level on a financial basis to consider that they're aligned. We want this to be fair. As I said, if things go well, thanks to Carried and also those elements, they can become super rich. And fine, again, we're really happy with that. But what we do not want is people not feeling it if it doesn't work well. We can lose everything all the money we invested. This is the maximum we can lose. This is the money we invested, potentially the reputation as well. What about a team which says, okay, it didn't work, so what? Let's move to the next project. And that's not how we consider the market would work. And again, just ask those GPs asking those questions, how they behave with the entrepreneurs, with the founders. Would they accept them to become millionaires just by being there and not performing? I'm not sure. We'll make sure to ask that question in the community as well. To be fair to the questioner as well, this question, of course, comes from people who are used to a salary that's quite beyond, quite above what the EIF required them to go down to. And as such, you know, I can definitely understand why you would think that this is a bit tough, especially then considering that they're coming from a geography where you basically can't raise a fund and be yes. in the VC game unless you have the EIF. And then you have the EIF asking you to go to one third of your uh, past wage. <laughs> yeah, but you know, we have many examples of people who were earning lots more than what they have now. But they're fine with that because their motivation is not the immediate salary. 
again, this is carried interest. And ask the people who now have backed those super successful companies, we have all names in, in mind, ask them if they would have preferred to get a bigger salary but less carried interest. And again, coming back to this question of team commitment, when things work well, when you are pitching investors to invest and to commit millions, and we're not talking about small amount, this is big money, you know, how can you pretend that this is the best project ever that they have to absolutely to back if you're not ready to put your own money in it? And again, those successful uh, GPs who have been backing those tech accounts, unicorns, or whatever you call them, ask them if they're not happy to get not only the carried interest, but also a bigger part through their LP commitment in the fund. I can understand the concept of the question when it comes from someone who used to work in a big US fund earning maybe three times more. Fine. But would they be happier being one amongst tens of people in this fund or being the leading one in a new geography, another geography, another sector, with the opportunity to become the reference player in Europe, which will come with successes, which would mean that they would earn a bit more than what they can live with. And again, maybe one comment also on this question. We never ask people to get that salary or that salary. We tell them, guys, with what you plan in the budget, this is too much. You have to think about how you can rebalance it. And maybe also something people should think more frequently about is adapting the, the salary to the fund size, meaning it can be a starting point, this salary with a minimum size, but then potentially increasing a bit, not doubling it, but increasing a bit depending on this and that, or if the fund reaches a minimum size, another size. These are elements we are open to discuss. We'll, maybe we will not agree on that, but at least I think the entry point is that the salary in the VC industry in Europe, generally speaking, is super interesting. I have in mind a case, in a, again, in a Central Eastern Europe of a manager, and they're earning, frankly, I think, even not what an analyst would get in France or Germany. But they're fine with that. They say that with that, they live well, and they're not interested in living super well with salary. These are the type of managers we think we are more aligned with than the ones getting uh, much bigger salaries and not putting a skin in the game. We just spoke about management fees here, and as such, I think we should also touch on recycling management fees. Is that something you believe in at the EIF, or is it something you, I would be rather that the managers don't? I think on this one, we're even more open than many other LPs, meaning that usually we accept to recycle up to 100 20, 25% of the total commitment. The point for us, and this is a limitation we have in our statutes, is that at any point in time, there should not be more than 100% of the total commitment invested. So it's not on a cumulated basis, it's at any point in time. But then it's a question of how much you think can reasonably be recycled. So that's why usually it's around 100, let's say between 110 and 120, 25%. Okay, then let's move quickly to another question because we're running out of time as always with you, David. Uh, it's only a good thing. <laughs> you have an angel investor program and I'm very interested in understanding how you pick them and maybe if you go also say a few words about how you see this program connecting to the VC world. So this program is called EAF, European Angels Fund. And this is something which we started in Germany initially because we made a statement that, and it came also from our research, that at that time, uh, the early stage market was still under development, was not as a uh, well uh, populated as it is now, but still some of the initial investment for startups was still made by business angels or successful entrepreneurs mainly. 
So we thought that providing them with additional firepower would help. And since then, we had re replicated this to a number of other geographies. The way it worked is that individuals, it's not group of business angels, it's individuals, have to apply on a specific website, provide a specific information just to pre-qualify them. And if they are pre-qualified as being potentially good investors, meaning that they have a particular strategy, beginning of a track record, we will not ask them to have made tens of investments with uh, one sort of exits. But at least one, two exits, four, five, ten investments, you know, and we found quite a lot of them in Germany with very various type of profiles, starting from the very successful entrepreneurs who sold this company hundreds of millions, getting half of it uh, for him, or with a professor at university who used to provide 10, 15K investment into what he thought was an interesting project from his students. So very strong diversity. And the way it works is that once they were pre-qualified, we run a lighter due diligence compared to um, a fund due diligence and agreed on a specific amount that this person would be investing in this geography and in uh, certain sectors. And if we agreed on that, then basically it told us uh, we would invest, let's say, $3 million over the next five years in this uh, type of companies. Then we allocated an additional $3 million. So we were doubling his firepower, and it was a kind of automatic co-investment with a one-to-one -one ratio. So each time he was investing one euro in a company which was in line with the guidelines of the mandate, then an additional euro was invested from this envelope that was allocated to him. I really love that model, especially for bringing people from the angel environment into the VC environment, because it's the start of that journey, right? The only thing I don't like about it is that it requires quite a significant wealth at the angel level. Have you ever considered doing something similar to that, but with investors not able to do as big tickets? We started initially with a smaller ticket of five or 600K. Because we have to build a portfolio. Still quite significant. Yes, I'm not saying that it's not. It's just that we cannot, at CIF, work with everyone. So we had to make decisions. And we also have, for those programs, we had half of the financing coming from the Ministry of Economics in Germany. And there was also some request there. And all in all, we agreed that we would focus on those who still are a bit structured. Indeed, it was not open for everyone. And the uh, overall ticket that could be allocated to this program was a kind of element making the difference between passing the threshold or not. Going below this would require a lot and a lot of work. Already this is a lot of work because you can uh, imagine what it is also for those business angels then when it comes to reporting, valuation and all those things. So. I would say it was kind of focusing on semi-professional type of investors. And what we've seen as well is that a number of them have no transition to fully institutional mode and are now raising VC funds, not remaining on the BA front anymore. I cannot say how it will continue to evolve because of this we don't know. It will depend also on the results of those investments made. So we are now coming towards the end of the investment period of those programs and with also BAs showing for many of them, quite good returns. But again, we do not know yet how it will uh, be replicated in the future. I love the program. I love the thought of it. So super cool. I'll kick it to David now for the quick fire round. Yeah, we are almost out of time and we always like to end with a quick fire round. That means quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. David, are you ready? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so first question for you personally, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? I like very much those super technical uh, sectors where we have in Europe 
very skilled and developed minds, I would say. A lot of brains that we need to help transitioning from research to market. So this is all about a deep tech. How do the EIF work with universities to get their structures in line? Because some of them are quite abhorrent. We have been, I think, the most active investor in the tech transfer segment for quite some time now. We are developing particular programs for countries where you would not expect TT to happen. As we say it, TT is a tech transfer. This is how we do it. And we partner usually with universities. And I think one of the most important elements we bring there is this structuring input in making it investable as well for potentially uh, private investors. Second question after Andreas tried butchering the quickfire round. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's the most counterintuitive thing, uh, David, that you've learned during your time at the EIF? Mm, good question. Huh. My fear when I was entering EIF was that it would be uh, highly political decisions in terms of investment. And at the end, we have uh, quite a full autonomy to the extent that we base our decision on facts and not feelings. Because, you know, with the number of nationalities we have in the team, sometimes you could think that someone from this country would favor his home country, not at all, at the end. And that's something uh, which you're always a bit scared about, especially being French. And uh, <laughs> at the end, worked very well. Very honest reply. I like that. A third and final question. I'm very curious to hear this one. What can we expect in the future from David Dana? I'd like to know as well. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, David is in the process of raising his own VC fund with 90% money from the EIF. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and on this point, you would see that actually the track record of people launching their own initiatives, but after having passed some time at EIF is not great. Something you're always wondering, and I think at the end, it's better not to mix everything. You know, you try to go your own path. If you're successful, maybe in the future it could happen. But if you do not manage to attract private investors, should you have been working for EIF or any other kind of institution, it means that there's something that you're not doing correctly. And it's not because you have been at EIF that you know, um, you have been or you are at EIF that you know everything. And I think maybe uh, as a conclusion of this discussion, something I really appreciate is that I am learning every day. You know, should it be in terms of managing people, as I said, which is a part of my job now, but also on anything you think you may master or understand quite deeply, you're always learning new things, new way of doing things. And this is the chance we have at EIF is that we are talking to a lot of different people from the students to uh, the highly successful uh, VC manager, entrepreneur, CEO of the largest tech companies now. You're always learning something with everyone because you have to keep down to earth and think that you're part of EIF. That's great. If you get out of EIF, it might be a bit different. So you may be contributing, but at the end, uh, the institution is here, has been here for some time and will be here when you leave as well. Don't forget it. And that's why we launched this podcast, because with people like you, we're also learning every day. So thank you for letting us start the day uh, on such a positive learning note. I personally really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Million David. This was awesome. We really enjoyed having you on the European VC today. And we hope that it wasn't too much hassle to deal with all the scheduling we had to do to make this work. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I really appreciate it as well. And always happy to contribute and provide feedback on what's uh, we've seen on the market and personal feelings as well. So thanks for that. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.